So this morning, I am continuing in my sermon series entitled Strength and Weakness. We've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians, and I believe this is probably the next to last Sunday in this letter. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with 2 Corinthians, it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth, uh, part of Greece, part of the ancient Roman Empire. It's a church that he started around the year 50 AD, and then he moved on to start other churches and as issues arose in the Corinthian church, he would visit or send letters to them. And so 2 Corinthians is one of the letters we have that he wrote. And one of the main issues that was arising that has come up again and again throughout this letter is that there were false teachers, teachers who had arisen in the midst of the Corinthian church that were teaching things that were not true. And not only were they teaching things that were not true, uh, they were also slamming Paul, throwing shade on him and destroying, trying to destroy the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. And it put Paul in a very difficult situation because he was forced to try to defend himself without getting defensive, to expose these false teachers without sounding petty or jealous, and to win back the heart of the Corinthians without seeming needy or pushing them further away. It was a really difficult position for him. So in this chapter, uh, we're going to be going through 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 12, 13. It's a pretty lengthy passage, and so bear with me. I'm going to have the words up here on the screen next to me. It's a pretty lengthy passage, and he tries to take a unique approach to defending himself, to exposing these false teachers, and to winning back the hearts of the Corinthians. So uh, in the process of doing this, he really helps us, I think, identify false teachers, identify people who are teaching things that are just not true. And he really has a lot to teach us as well about accessing the power and strength of God. So let's read together 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Well, you can listen. I'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 through 12, 13. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think that I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and I will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Caia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, and their end will be what their actions deserve. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me, just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools, since you are so wise." 
In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. How are you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden for you, to you? Forgive me this wrong. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, open up our hearts and open up our ears so that we might hear from you, see you more clearly, understand who you are, what this passage means for us. Transform our hearts and our lives, Lord, as we meditate on your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins this section by comparing himself to a father and the Corinthians to his children. He says, like a father, I, I'm trying to protect your purity so that I can deliver you to Jesus. 
the bridegroom on that day. But he says, I'm afraid that just like Eve led, Eve was led astray by the serpent in the garden, in the same way you are being led astray by these false teachers. And as he shares these concerns with them, I share these concerns with you. I think he, in this passage, shares a lot about how to spot false teachers, how to spot people who are teaching things that are not even, not even not true, but also deadly to you. And so I just want to kind of go through a little bit of what he shares and help us in the same way understand discerning false teachers. So they might be a false teacher if they preach a different Jesus, different spirit, or a different gospel. He says this, he says, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So he says, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent, you are being deceived by these false teachers. And you know how I know they're false teachers? They're teaching a different Jesus proclaiming a different spirit and teaching you a different gospel than the one that I teach to you. And he goes on to say, it's no wonder because you know why? He says, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And it's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. How important is that line right there that Satan masquerades as an angel of righteousness? How important is that to know? Because Satan doesn't come to you, you know, with the horns and the pitchfork, right? Where you're like, oh no, it's Satan. He says, no, Satan comes to you in disguise as an angel of righteousness, enlightened, coming to you attractive as a seducer. That's how Satan comes to you, as a charismatic leader with special knowledge as an ascended master with new revelation, as an enlightened personality who knows exactly how to make you feel special. That is how Satan comes to you, not with a pitchfork and horns, but he comes in a much more attractive, seductive, camouflaged manner. And then what does he do? He takes the truth of God and he twists it ever so slightly, injects the truth with just enough error to lead you astray. That's the way it was in the beginning. Paul talks about how the serpent deceived Eve. And how did the serpent deceive Eve? Saying, did God really say don't eat the fruit from that tree? Did he really say you're going to die? You're not going to die. Because God knows when you eat the fruit of that tree, you're going to be like God, knowing good from evil. He takes God's words and he twists them ever so slightly. You're going to be like God if you eat from that fruit. Again, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds are being led astray. How do you know someone's a false teacher? They're teaching a different Jesus, a different spirit or a different gospel. In other words, another different good news, a different way to be saved. Let's take an example. Anyone recognize these guys? Think of Mormonism, otherwise known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When you go on their website and go to the section where it says, who is Jesus, this is what it says. He's the Son of God and our loving Savior. 
His perfect example shows us the way to live. His teachings give us direction. But most importantly, he suffered and died for our sins so that we can be forgiven when we repent. And through him, we can find lasting happiness and look forward to living again with God someday. Not bad, right? Not exactly as I would have said it, but that's not bad. But then when you dig further and, and dig a little further into who Jesus is according to the Mormons, you also find this, that Mormons believe that Jesus Christ is a created being, the spirit brother of Lucifer, Satan, the firstborn spirit child of the heavenly father and one of his goddess wives. Jesus then progressed to deity in the spirit world. He was later physically conceived in Mary's womb as the literal only begotten son of God, the father in the flesh. Right? So at first you're like, oh, they believe in Jesus. So do I. They believe Jesus died for our sins. So do I. And then you read a little further and you're like, okay, the Jesus they're talking about is not the same Jesus that I'm talking about here. I, I'm talking about a Jesus who is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, divine, co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, not a created being, not the product in some other dimension of a heavenly father and a goddess mother. It's a different Jesus. It's a false teaching. How about these guys? You recognize them? The Jehovah's Witnesses also have different teachings about Jesus, the Spirit, the Gospel. This is what their website says about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's power in action, his active force. God sends out his spirit by projecting his energy to any place to accomplish his will. The Holy Spirit is not a person. Different Holy Spirit. They use the same terms. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus, all of that. But when they say those terms, they mean something different than I mean it. We, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, talk about the third person of the Trinity, a personal entity, not the force of the Father, not an impersonal force. And the Jehovah's Witnesses go on to say that Jesus, again, a created being, not divine, that there's one God, the Father. Trinity, made up doctrine, according to them. False teaching, different Jesus, different spirit, different gospel. What is the gospel? This is how Paul defined it in his last letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, he said this, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then all to, to all the apostles. And then last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So, Jesus, so Paul says, let me summarize the gospel again for you. It's this, Jesus Christ died for our sins. And then he was buried and he rose again. In a nutshell, he says, that's the gospel. Let me remind you of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He doesn't add to it anything else. And there are a lot of people with different gospels, preaching different gospels. Sometimes it's taking this gospel and just twisting it ever so slightly. But 
it's, there's lots of different gospels, different messages out there about how to reach God, how to be saved, how to find enlightenment. Some will tell you that it's not just grace alone that Jesus died for your sins, but it's grace plus works. Not just believing in God, but doing good works that saves you. Some will say it's grace plus sacraments, that his death for you plus obeying or observing these sacraments will save you. Some might say it's grace plus baptism, that yes, Jesus died for you, but unless you're baptized, you're not saved. Some might say it's grace plus speaking in tongues, that you're not really saved unless you speak in tongues. But Paul says, let me remind you of the gospel. It's not Christ plus anything else. It's Jesus died for your sins, trusting in him. That's salvation. That's the gospel. Worse yet, there's others out there who will be teaching you that it's not about that. Just set aside Jesus and the atonement and Jesus dying for your sins. That it's about there's other ways to enlightenment. There's other ways to heaven. There's other ways to divinity by following these leaders, by obeying these actions, by putting these practices into place that you can become divine. You can reach God yourself. That somehow salvation comes through your own good works, your own spiritual efforts. So how do you know it's a false teacher? First of all, he's saying they come into you and they're preaching a different Jesus or a different spirit, different gospel, or all three of those. If they are, it's a false gospel. It's a false message. Second thing, Paul says, they might be a false teacher if they point people to themselves. They might be a false teacher if they are pointing people to themselves. Remember what Paul said at the end of last chapter. He said, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. But let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to open their eyes and see the charlatans for who they are. These are not people who are on your side, and they are not on God's side. They are pulling you away from the true gospel and true Jesus. They're commending themselves, building themselves up. They're charging you money for their ministry. They're boasting of their pedigree, their wisdom. They're boasting of their visions and revelations. They are pumping themselves up so that you're attracted to them and say, wow, these people are so much more spiritual than Paul is. And their hearts are being led astray from Jesus. They're trying to present themselves as the spiritually elite in a way that draws the hearts of the Corinthians after them. They're not pointing to Jesus in the gospel. They're not pointing to a Christ who died on the cross for their sins. They're not teaching about the need to take up your own cross and follow him. They're pointing to themselves. And the Corinthians, unfortunately, are being seduced by it. They're weighing Paul, who they see suffering and, and going through all kinds of hardships and not as an impressive public speaker and not as impressive in person. And then they're weighing Paul against these spiritually elite giants, and they're going after them. How do you know a teacher is false? Well, they might be false if they are pointing people to themselves and not to Jesus. Because all over this world, there are charismatic leaders who are drawing people to themselves, pointing people to themselves, 
now that there's, you know, YouTube videos, you can find them all over the place. There are all kinds of charismatic leaders drawing men and women to themselves, lifting themselves up with their knowledge, their wisdom, their visions and revelations and prophecies and all of this as the ones you need to devote yourself to and follow. They're not pointing people to Jesus. And Paul will have none of that. Paul's not playing that game. He goes out of his way to say, listen, all right, you, you, you're, you've, drove, you've driven me to it. I need to be foolish. Fine, I'm going to be foolish. Along with these, I'm just going to boast. But what does he do when he starts to boast? He starts to boast in his weaknesses. Let me tell you about all the ways that I've suffered. Let me tell you about my weaknesses. Remember, he says this. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's not the one who commends himself who's approved. It's the one whom the Lord commends. He says, a true teacher, a true man or woman of God, isn't trying to point people to themselves. They're trying to point people to Jesus. They know that they're nothing more than a servant, a slave. Paul knows that's who he is. Every letter he introduces himself by saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Not Paul, the ascended master, the spiritually elite man. He's Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave. And slaves don't boast in themselves. Slaves serve the master and point people to the master. Remember, this is how Jesus put it. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what, asked the disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be very last and the servant of all. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The one who is the servant of all. Who's the greatest in the world? Not the one who's the servant. It's the one who lifts up themselves and promotes themselves as the enlightened one, as the spiritually powerful one. That's the way the world goes. But Jesus says it's the opposite in the kingdom. The one who truly is following God, the true man or woman of God, is a servant of all, a slave to Jesus, pointing people to him. If you, read, if you read closely chapter 12, it's a little confusing where he talks about this revelation because in the beginning, it sounds like he's talking about someone else, but then it becomes clear throughout the chapter that he's actually talking about a vision that he had, a revelation he had, where he ascended to heaven, basically, and experienced something that he can't even talk about. And it's amazing. It's like if, if the Corinthians hadn't even driven him to this, we never would have known about this. Paul is not going around in every letter saying, let me tell you about this vision I had. I was in heaven. I saw Jesus. He's, it's, it's almost like he, he does not want to talk about this. He's like, I know a man, a man in Christ, and he was caught up to heaven, and, and whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. What he, what he saw, he's not allowed to tell. He doesn't, even, he doesn't get into it telling about his great visions and experiences and spiritual revelations. We never would have even known about it if the Corinthians hadn't driven him to it. Because Paul knows it's not about that. It's not about the great experiences and wisdom and revelation, all of that. It's about Christ. It's about pointing people to him, not pointing people to ourselves. Think of John the Baptist. You know, he was the prophet who appeared before Jesus. And when the people started to flock to Jesus and leave John the Baptist, his disciples were complaining, saying, what's going on here? And John said this, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I was sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. 
and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Right there, that's the attitude of a real man or woman of God. The bride, the people of God, belong to the bridegroom, and that's Jesus. And it brings me joy when they flock to him, and I must become less, and he must become greater, and I must point people to him, to Jesus. Not to myself, not lifting myself up, not commending myself, but pointing people to Jesus. The third thing that he says about false teachers is very similar to the second. It's this, that they boast in their strengths. These false teachers are boasting in their strengths, their Jewish heritage, their accomplishments, their rhetorical eloquence, their ecstatic visions, their special knowledge. And in the process, they are slamming Paul. They are putting down Paul, calling him an average speaker, you know, unimpressive in person, pointing out all the ways he suffers, saying, how can this be a man of God? Look at all the suffering he goes through. Don't you want to be more like us? We don't suffer. We're experiencing health and wealth and all kinds of things. Why, why do you think he's the man of God? We're the men of God. They're boasting in their strengths. But Paul knows, yeah, the charisma of man, the talents of men and women, they can attract people to themselves. They can build a church or a religion even, but there's no true spiritual power in those things. There's no true spiritual power in man's talents and strengths and charisma. Man's abilities can't save anyone. They can't free anyone from sin. They can't bring anyone from spiritual death to spiritual life. Only Christ can do that. And so he says, I'm not going to boast in my strength. I'm going to boast in my weakness that Christ's power may rest on me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul's like, yeah, I can match their pedigree. I can, I can match all these things. There's even a throwaway line at the end about, yeah, you know, we, we, we had the marks of true apostles and our signs and wonders and all that. It's just kind of a throwaway line. We're not going to talk about that. It's not what commends us. He spends his time instead talking about his suffering, his weakness. He lays out this catalog of suffering he's been through. Because he says, you know what marks a man of God? It's not that they are puffing themselves up in their knowledge and enlightenment and all of that. It's that their lives conform to Christ who suffered and died. And as I follow him, I have been suffering alongside. And so I'm going to boast in my weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. That's where God's power is found. He ends with this story. He talks about this great revelation he had where he's caught up to heaven. But then he continues by saying this, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. What an amazing passage. The Greek word for thorn there is the word skolops, which refers to a pointed piece of wood. Because sometimes you hear thorn, you think like a little rosebush thorn. But it's more like a stake, a, a wooden stake in your side. That is the, the, the vision you get. 
something really painful, whatever it was. He doesn't say what the thorn is. People have speculated throughout the years. Was it some physical ailment? Was it uh, a relational difficulty? What was it that was his thorn? It's probably for the best that he doesn't say what it is because it allows us to kind of read our thorn into the passage. But he says, to keep me from becoming conceited, God allowed this to happen. And even though I prayed again and again and again and pleaded with him to remove this from me, he said, no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I mean, can't you just picture Paul? He's like, I could be so much more effective, God, for you, for the kingdom, if you would just remove this from me. I could do so much more. I'd have so much more energy and so much more strength if you'd just remove this thorn. And God says, I hear you, Paul, but no. And he says, for two reasons. He says, first of all, it's to keep him from becoming conceited because he knows, God knows that when people have these kind of revelations and experiences and knowledge and all of this, they can get puffed up. They can start to think that they are something special. And God knew that a proud Paul would be of no spiritual value to him, right? An arrogant Paul would be of no spiritual use to him. But a humble Paul, a Paul who is familiar with suffering and weakness would be of great spiritual value. And he also says, my power is made perfect in weakness. The answer, Paul, to your prayer is no. I'm not going to remove it. But I'm going to use this weakness as the place through which my power flows. As you stay humble and connected and dependent on me, in your weakness, I am going to be strong and my power is going to flow through you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is is made perfect in weakness. Somehow Paul's weakness, when he submits it to God, is going to be the conduit for God's power. It's going to be the way that God's power comes through him to other people. More than giving God his strengths and talents, it's going to be giving his weaknesses, his suffering, his hardships, his humiliation, his difficulties. God is going to use those. He's going to take what Satan intended for evil, this thorn, this messenger of Satan, he's going to take what Satan intended for evil, and he's going to use it for good. Isn't that what God does all throughout the Bible? He takes what Satan intends for evil, and he uses it for good. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So please listen to these words and take heart, because I know... Many of you sitting out here can relate to this passage, and you can think, and there's a thorn that you're thinking of right now. Whether it is some sort of physical or mental malady, or whether it's some relationship or some person or something that you struggle with where you're just like, this is a thorn that I have prayed for God to fix, for God to remove, and it is right to pray for those things. I'm not saying don't pray for those things. It is right to pray for God to heal, for God to bring peace, for God to relieve. But if he says no... It is not because he doesn't love you. If he says no, listen to these words. He is saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And in your weakness, I will be strong. And it will be your weakness that will allow my power to flow through you in a way that it could not through just your strengths. Consider these words from Brendan Manning in his book about, he, he referenced a play by Thornton Wilder. He says, there's a scene in Thornton Wilder's play, The Angel That Troubled the Waters. The scene is a doctor comes to the pool every day wanting to be healed of his melancholy, 
and his gloom and his sadness. Finally, the angel appears. The doctor, he's a medical doctor, he goes to step into the water. The angel blocks his entrance and says, no, step back, this healing is not for you. The doctor pleads, but I've got to get into the water. I cannot live this way. The angel says, no, this moment is not for you. And he says, but how can I live this way? And the angel says to him, doctor, without your wounds, where would your power be? It is your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men and women. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children of this earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only wounded soldiers can serve. If you're going to possess true spiritual power in your lives, it's not going to be by following the enlightened masters and the spiritual elite and all those people who puff themselves up to draw men and women to themselves. It's going to be through weakness, hardships, insults, difficulties, and persecutions. True spiritual strength is found through those ways as we submit ourselves to God. And Paul concludes by saying, I'm going to boast all the more about my weaknesses, that Christ's power may rest on me. And let me leave you with three ways quickly that you can embrace your weakness, that you might experience true spiritual power. The first is this, confession and repentance. How do you em em embrace weakness so that Christ's power might rest on you? First is confession and repentance. Think of, think of the 12-step movements. If you're familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, movements like that, what's the first step in recovery? I admitted that I was powerless over my addiction, that my life had become unmanageable. The path to strength begins with an admission of weakness, not by trying on my own to conquer this again, but by admitting my need, my weakness. How does salvation begin for the Christian? It begins with an admission of weakness. I am a sinner, and I cannot save myself. There's nothing I can do to make myself right with God. I need a Savior. That is where spiritual strength and power comes from. It begins with confession and repentance turning from sin to God. It's not found in pretending you have it all together. It's found in confessing to God those areas where you fall short, the areas you cannot overcome, the areas you need grace and mercy. Secondly, it's found in dependence, dependence, recognizing your continual need for God. Not a moment goes by where you are not completely dependent upon God for every breath. At any moment, God could stop your breathing. At any moment, God could end your life. Every breath we take is because of God and his mercy. I know we don't think about that. We think we're self-sufficient. We think we're doing everything in our own strength and power, but we're not. And the more we recognize that we are completely dependent upon God, that we need to stay plugged into the power source, so to speak, the stronger we will be, the more powerful we will be. The more we will have the strength to rejoice even in trials, to be strong in our weakness. And the third way to embrace your weakness is vulnerability. Confession and repentance, dependence and vulnerability. Can I encourage you 
to be open and honest with others about your weakness, about your suffering. There is tremendous spiritual power in a community that is vulnerable with each other, that is open and honest with each other. If all I do is share my strengths with you, if all I do is talk about how spiritual I am, the great visions and revelations and knowledge that I have, you might put me on a pedestal. You might raise me up and say, Eric is amazing. You might say, I want to be like him. But there's not spiritual power in there. There's not the kind of spiritual power that comes when I am sharing my weakness, my suffering, and you are sharing it with me. And you can be encouraged by my faithfulness and suffering and, and how I turn to the Lord. And I can be encouraged as you pray for me and support me and share encouragement with me, that we can encourage each other as we point to Jesus, the source of all strength. There is tremendous power in a community that embraces vulnerability and openness and honesty with each other. It doesn't just talk about the strengths and the good times, but shares about the hard times and encourages and strengthens each other. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. I encourage you, whatever you are struggling with and suffering with, whatever thorn is in your flesh, yes, pray for God to remove it, but if he does not, be encouraged that his grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. Let me close with the words of Charles Spurgeon. He said this, God does not need your strength. He has more than enough power of his own. He asks for your weakness. He has none of that himself. And he is longing, therefore, to take your weakness and use it as the instrument in his own mighty hand. Will you not yield your weakness to him and receive his strength? Take a minute in silence with the Lord as I transition over to lead us in worship. And just take a minute and lift up to him the weaknesses, the suffering to him that you might receive his strength. <clears throat>